Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Story of the week comes from Robinhood and their 3% checking slash savings slash not a checking savings account. Can you put checking and savings in air quotes when you say that? Yes. This was kind of wild. So this was the, I don't want to take a victory lap too early, but I'm going to take two victory laps if you will allow me. I think I before on this podcast said Robinhood is going to try to be the bank for millennials, which they're obviously trying to do. But I also said it's going to be really hard for technology firms to make it in the regulatory environment of the financial space. And I think this story is kind of both of these. So first of all, not being an expert on banking regulations from everything uh, I can... Uh, don't, don't be so modest, Ben. <laughs> okay. okay. In my spare time. It sounds to me like it's almost impossible for them to even offer a checking and savings account because of the way that they're structured. So this would have... Let's say this happened, even though it sounds like it's not anymore. This would have been a brokerage account and they just totally messed this up. This was like the Facebook move fast and break things and... I just can't believe that like the lawyers signed off on this because the story just kept getting worse and worse. There's a lot of people saying that they didn't mess up, that this is intended, and they actually executed flawlessly because they were able to sign up 600,000 people, myself included. I signed up. I'm on the waiting list. I did. I tried. That, that's the thing. Like Maybe the thing is millennials won't care anyway because they already hate the big banks. But if you listen to Ashton Kutcher, he says the truth is everyone should be earning 3% interest, but there's only one place you can get it at Robinhood app, hashtag investor, which this was deleted later. <laughs> it's kind of oh, funny. it was? <laughs> he deleted it. Yeah, someone, someone screenshotted it. You know what's funny? This, as this kept evolving, we have like seven different links in our doc that we use for the show. It kept growing. And I mean, the thing is, yes, I agree with you. Like it's kind of the no publicity, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Maybe it'll work and it'll get people to realize that Robinhood is trying to do something for them. And, and how many millennials really care or even know what... FDIC insurance is or SPIC insurance or whatever it is, whatever SIPC, whatever they're trying to get. This is funny. The SIPC said Robinhood hadn't contacted the organization before the introduction. Stephen Harbeck, its president and chief executive officer, suggested the SIPC would not insure the product. Honestly, this so I, I have a local credit union account through my mortgage is through a local credit union, and I earn three percent on my max checking account. So it's not like this is that far out of the realm of possibilities. They, they never said, I guess, what the max would be. Well, Marcus offers 205. Mine has a max of 15 grand. So maybe they would have maxed it out anyway that you couldn't have done it. But this was just, I don't know. This just was a bungled operation from the, from the get-go. The thing is that I don't think that it sounds like maybe the cash would be guaranteed. I'm not really sure how this works, but the 3% interest would not. That would be subject to, flux, to market fluctuations. Right. By then, they could be higher or lower depending on what the Fed does. So even in a low-cost product and a low-duration like SHY, which is the short-term treasury ETF, one to three years, you get 2.7% now almost. Okay. So what if, they're, so what if they invest in that and or something even shorter than that, 30-day paper, 
and they're getting whatever, 2%. And then what if they subsidize the other 100 basis points through profitability from their other operations The uh, when they sell the order flow and stuff like that, and they're actually losing money on this, and the idea that they will get more people to sign up and more people to trade on their platform, which will ultimately result in profitability. I think that their only profits actually come from venture capital investors that give them money. I don't think they actually make money elsewhere. No. But so the thing is, with my was, credit union that, that offers... That was weak. That was weak. Okay, thanks. <laughs> nice, nice shirt. Uh, through so through my credit union, like I said, I have a mortgage. So they, even though they're paying out three percent in checking, they're earning a spread by offering that mortgage, even though there's a duration mismatch there. Robinhood doesn't have that ability. Right. So, so they they're not a bank that can earn some sort of interest spread, even if the liabilities are mismatched. So making this promise again, I think I agree. Maybe they're just deciding they're going to go for it and get as much publicity as they can and sign as many people up to everything that they can because they kind of did something earlier with crypto. I don't know how that's working out for them. To so, this offer- is, so this is a cash management service. It's not a, I mean, cause it's, it's, it's a brokerage account. It's not checking in savings. Right. I mean, the crazy thing is it's, it's bonkers to me that people are so excited about 3%. It just doesn't in the past, that would have been just a, I guess that's kind of the state of the world we're in now. I got excited about it. Yeah, I I guess it sounds okay, but I feel like they're going to have a harder time in this space than they have planned on. Maybe I'm wrong, and maybe millennials won't care. So how does this how does this relate to Netflix? Okay, so you remember a few? I guess it was 2011. Netflix tried to roll out their. I'm trying to look at different ways this could go. I do remember that because. I shorted Netflix before earnings. Actually, I didn't short them. I bought put options. And I think I like made 5x on my money. So Netflix... That was one of my, day, best, my best trades when, ever. When they used to do the DVDs in the mail, which I used to do until probably like 18 months ago or two years ago, I still had it. They were going to split the company into two things. One was a streaming and one was going to be DVDs. And they were going to call one of them Quickster. It was 2011. And it was a, it was a horrible rollout. It didn't work. They got a ton of flack and feedback. And then they ended up backtracking... And I mean, at the time, people thought, oh, this is just a stupid technology company. They have no idea what they're doing. There was a lot of bad press for them. And I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is Robinhood could go one of two ways. Path one would be, this is how things are going to go. And they maybe they haven't thought through these things enough as much as they should. Path two is, this is a bad PR thing. And they're going to figure it out and come to a conclusion eventually and that's something you know that that works. And they have maybe this will be their Netflix quickster moment. I don't know. Maybe well, that's path- a little... Path three, a lot of people thought that this was actually brilliant marketing, that they knew exactly what they were doing, that they would they would get a slap on the wrist, they would say sorry, and, and they executed exactly on what their vision was. I have no opinion if that's true or not. Were you reading this on a Reddit thread? This sounds like kind of a conspiracy theory. Well, no, this is this is a common a common hot take on Twitter. That's I mean, and again, the people that run Robinhood, it's two fairly young tech guys. I don't think they really understand the financial services industry as much as they probably could because they don't have a lot of experience in it. And maybe it is the move fast and break things that that's what they're going for. So I, I, I guess I could see that. Let's pivot to the market. How are your call options doing from last week? You know, somebody tried to dunk on me on Twitter. <laughs> okay. I think they don't understand the purpose of call options. I can't prove this, of course, but I genuinely believe this to be true. And I'm not kidding that if I bought the call options on Monday morning, I would have sold them by Monday afternoon. You're the you're the you're the greatest paper trader in the history of paper trading. You don't hold weekly options to expiration. I wasn't trying to exercise them, for goodness sakes. All right. So Jen Oblon tweeted: U.S. based 
stock funds post $46 billion outflows in week ended Wednesday. Largest withdrawals on record dating to 1992. By the way, that's all caps and uh, got a lot of attention. 223 retweets, 362 likes. Then Urban Carmel tweeted, Lipper reporting $46 billion equity mutual fund and ETF outflow in the past week, which is huge, but at least half of this is seasonal end of year stuff. And he shows the outflows of the last six, six years and they're, they're all big numbers. And then finally, sentiment trader comes in and says the largest equity fund outflow of the year almost always occurs in mid December. Even so, this week's outflow of 0.44% of total equity fund assets is the largest in 15 years. The previous record was 0.39% in mid-August 2011. So a lot of the data that we're getting on the market in terms of the sell-off and stuff like this is the worst since 2011. Okay, isn't this kind of a Dow Points thing where the bigger the stock market gets, of course the outflows are going to be bigger when people sell? Yes, this is true, but sentiment trader... Did it as a percentage basis, you know. So he 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 normalized it. Right. There's what nineteen trillion dollars in in mutual funds. It is kind of interesting when you see these capitalized numbers and they look so big. And obviously, you can they're talking about it on a relative basis, but the fund industry is so large. These these are just tiny teeny edges, right? Don't you think around moves around the edges? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I have a hard time using these numbers to to mean anything. I agree. They're good for tweets, and and I don't really think they're actionable. There was a chart floating around two weeks ago from MSCI FactSet. The percentage of MSCI world stocks and market cap now down 20% or more, and uh, it's getting up there. It looks like about 50% of world stocks are in a bear market. I know people have a problem with saying individual stocks are in a bear market. You know what? Let's address that. I have a problem with that. I do not not have a problem with that. What's your case? such a noob whale thing to do. Why Why? would you... (laughs) Individual stocks are so much more volatile than the overall market. A bear market is like a collection of stocks. It's not the whole, it's not a single stock that goes into a bear market. And you don't, you can't say like this stock is in a bull market. This stock isn't, yeah. I don't buy it. All right. No. I guess I don't really care that much, but I don't think it's a big deal. I mean, whatever. By the way, someone sent us an update today of the, the chart of the number of, comp, the, the number of places in bear markets. And it's, I think it's now up to almost 40% of countries in the world are in a bear market which is kind of crazy. And the funny thing is, when you think about this, the US continues to be like the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry hamper. But the US is the one that people have been screaming about for years as being overvalued. And there's there's so much going on and there's so much debt in the country and things are screwed up. And the US continues to be the strongest market in the world, pretty much. It's, it is kind of amazing, isn't it? That all the doomsayers and charlatan uh, perma bear people have been pointing to the valuations in the U.S. and the U.S. continues to hold up better than international markets. So the Russell 2000 is in a bear market. Yeah, I'm talking I think about it's, the it's, it's, it's in its third. So I think the Russell was in a 20% decline in 2015 and 2011. But you know, I'm having this interesting thing now where I'm reading some bearish arguments that make sense to me that I okay. d- I'm not dismissive of, but they're coming from people that I strongly disagree with. Is that because is that because they've been bearish this whole time? Yes, that's, that's that's my problem. Is how do you how do you separate those opinions when someone's been bearish for seven years and now now you're just taking whatever the market is doing and applying it to their data or their analysis? Well, there's there's definitely a lot of that going on. I am not. And I'm not uber bearish, but I, I don't expect lower prices because of like, you know, uh, any macro sort of stuff or, or it's just that stocks are going lower. So I expect them to go lower. So you're not uber bearish. Would you say that you're lift bearish? Not bad. All right. And so over the weekend, there was 
a piece in the New York Times style section. This one got a lot of Twitter play. What was the what was the headline? So in the Sunday style section of the New York Times, the headline read assume crash position and it had a picture of a wave that was like a stock chart cresting and it says are you ready for the financial crisis of 2019 this was so bad there was there was a list of five potential catalysts i guess one of them was student loans which we'll talk about in a minute but it was just so bad like i don't know why this person was writing who like gave this person the green light to write about this but he wrote quote what might prove the pinprick to the everything bubble as doomers like to call it, could be anything, could be nothing. Only time will tell if the everything bubble is a bubble at all. I think my favorite one was they listed out in five different things. And the, the number one thing was an anti-billionaire uprising across America. And the only explanation was it could happen. Just saying. And that, that was it. Just saying. Uh, so similarly, over the weekend, Barron's came out as they do every year with the, I don't know if they interviewed 10 or a dozen Wall Street strategists. And I don't know when exactly these forecasts were made, but being that the market just sold off, the average strategist is expecting the S&P to end 2019 at like something like 2940 or something like that, which is 16 or 17% higher than where we are today. Melt up. Is that what they're saying? Was there anyone who was bearish? Uh, I don't think so. No, nobody was negative. Okay, I guess that's... So you wrote an article about this and you kind of bounced some of the ideas off of me a little bit. And you went through... How long did this take you? You went through and found all of the Barron's predictions since how long ago? 2007? Yeah, I uh, did a presentation on this earlier in the year and I I just never wrote about it. I don't know why. I guess I forgot. So a lot of the work was up front. Here's my rule of thumb as a pundit. If someone asks you for a year-end target for something, just don't answer it. Like, is there ever ever any upside for giving a specific value? I think the S&P is going to land the year at 2564.73. All right. So this is an Animal Spirits exclusive. My 2019 year-end forecast for the S&P 500 is... What are we at now? Hold on. I'll show you how the sausage is made. We are at 2563. My S&P 500 year on forecast for 2019 is 2562. <laughs> okay. Can I bid $1? Is that how this works? Price is right? Yeah. I'm going to go price is right rules. I just don't see the... I wrote about this earlier this week and predictions versus preparing. And I just don't see the... I don't see how helpful it is because... All these strategists that do this, they update as the year goes along, and all they do is update by what's happening. So stocks, if stocks go up in the first quarter, they'll think they're pretty good and pat themselves on the back. If stocks go down, they'll probably lower their targets, and as the year comes closer, they'll just change till it's pretty close to what the market actually is. I already saw a 2019 revision this morning. <laughs> I think it was from either Credit Suisse or Deutsche Bank, but I think the forecast lowered from like 3,200 to 2,900 or something, something like that. That's perfect. Okay, so this guy in the... New York Times says student loans are going to be the next cause of 2019 financial crisis, which seems a little crazy. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I don't know how you could ever... It's kind of like the pension stuff where I don't know how you could ever place a time frame on when it's going to matter. But what do you think? Because there was another piece in the Wall Street Journal about about student loans. And it feels like I hear, that, hear about this all the time now. Are there credit default swaps on student loans? <laughs> Why are you looking to bet against them? All right. So there was a, an article that somebody sent to us, College Bloat Meets the Blade. 
And some really good stuff in here. This is a wild statistic that I was not aware of. The student loan debt market is a trillion, one and a half trillion dollars, which is twice as much as the total credit card debt. Did you know that? I did know that. Here's the thing that... Hold, hold on, hold on. How did you know that? I was just doing some research on this. I've heard about this before. I was doing some research on credit cards. All right. I don't tell you everything. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the, here's the thing. In my mind, shouldn't student loan debt be higher than credit cards? Like you're actually... It's a good it's a good investment for most people. Obviously, there are people out there who misuse it and take out too much. But if you look at any of the statistics between unemployment or future earnings or expected earnings, it puts you in a better place if you get a degree. Like, so I understand why there's more people going to college and why there's more people taking out debt. So I think it's it's really getting really hard to sift through it all and, and figure out where the bad debt is and where the good debt is. And maybe the bad debt is rising because there's more people going to college who who aren't thinking these decisions through, but shouldn't student loan debt be rising over time as more people are getting educated? Yes, that makes sense. So this article spoke about Mitch Daniels, who is the president at Purdue University, or is it, yeah, Purdue University, right? That's how you say it? Yes. Didn't you go to Indiana? I did. You don't know Purdue? I got kicked out twice. Just, that's true. <laughs> just down the, no, I was just saying, much. I was just like, wait, it can't be University of Purdue. That doesn't make any sense. Okay. So when he arrived at, at Purdue in January 2013, the university had raised tuition 36 years in a row. By graduation oh, day in 2020, tuition won't have risen in eight years. We're able to say that the total cost and nominal dollars of going to Purdue will be less in 2020 than it was in 2012. Wow. So that's pretty cool. So he made it his, it was, it was his thing. That was his thing. Like, I'm not going to raise 36 years in a row. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's it's nuts, which is obviously the common thing. One of the things that he did was he... College textbooks fell 30%. And college textbooks is the biggest racket out there. It is so ridiculous. They invited Amazon onto campus and they set up their first brick and mortar facility, which was, which was a pretty good idea. This is, I've never heard this story before. This is, this is amazing. Cause th- yeah, if you look at the, st- the stats from inf- like the inflation stats, college textbooks have risen higher than the price of college even. How does, do you, do you how know are, that that college textbooks are the new gold? <laughs> yeah. How are they even a thing still if, we have the internet. Like, why do we need college textbooks so professors can earn more money? It's nuts. I, it's I don't nuts. see the need for them at all. So this is my favorite part of the article. Another in- innovation introduced in 2016 is the income share agreement, an alternative to traditional student loans under which a student receives funding for his education in exchange for a percentage of income for up to 10 years after graduation. And this is similar to what that guy, I forget his name, is doing with Lambda, right? The Lam- Yeah, the Lambda school we talked about. It makes, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You wonder how how students feel about it that long out after graduation if they're starting to make more money. But for someone who can't afford it or doesn't want to see that much student debt, it it seems to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think I think it's a great trade. All right, anything else on this topic? I don't know. It's it's one of those topics that I feel like it's always going to be used to scare people in the future. But I think there needs to be a little nuance, and I I don't know what the value is in terms of what's the tipping point where it gets too out of control? I, I really don't know what it is because I still think getting education is probably the best thing someone can do in terms of furthering their career prospects. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that this is going to be a headwind for like household formation and housing and stuff like that for people a little bit younger than us? It could be, or it could be an excuse for young people saying, there's no way I can afford a house. I've got to pay these student loans. So I, that makes sense. But I, I, I think people figure out a way and it, it'll it'll happen and again the average is what in the i don't know twenty thousand dollar range per person 
So obviously there's a big range around that average, but I think it's roughly 20 grand a person, which is not fun to be paying off when you're first getting into school or getting out of school and into the working world. But I don't think it's, if that's the amount of money you're paying back, I don't think that's enough to hold you back for your, for your whole life. Yeah. There's, by the way, before you email us, we know we're fully aware of all the horror stories out there. Um, obviously not every individual horror story, but we've read lots of them. And so do we do get a lot of actually emails, don't we? <laughs> we do. <laughs> yes, that's true. Feel free to send them. We don't care. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. All right. So bluegrass capital tweeted about market valuations. This came from Bloomberg. It looks like excluding Fang and Microsoft, the remaining 495 stocks in the S&P 500 are priced at less than 13 times expected 2019 earnings. Now, two caveats. Well, one thing that sounds pretty attractively priced, but of course, we don't know what 2019 earnings are going to be. Did you know that that my heating bill, X Energy, is $0? No, no, no. It's Come on. I don't, I don't, I don't know these X... No, I mean, you're, you're the pie chart guy who can, can show how much, how big these... I just don't see that... If you're going to look at the overall market, you have to include these stocks because they make up such a huge piece of the overall pie like true but maybe maybe he's coming at it from the angle of stock pickers yeah that's true if you want to if you want to go against these and again to my point so we had our talk your book segment this week talking about international stocks and i said maybe it's easier to beat the markets internationally because they don't have these huge stocks but let's say you do decide to bet against these and you're betting against all these big fang stocks that make up let's say what is it 15 20 percent of the of the market if we include microsoft too probably maybe a little less than that you're effectively shorting these names, and that's a huge bet. Now, if you, again, if you want to outperform, you have to try to be different. But if you're making that bet, and one of these stocks continues to do well, and the other four or five don't, you're probably still going to lose. So, I think trying to look at the market this way is is tough too. And again, that's one of the reasons the S and P is so hard to beat for people. I think. Thoughts? Uh, uh yeah. No. Uh. You just zoned out. No, I didn't. I was listening. I was following you the whole time. One of the reasons why international stocks or international markets might be easier to beat is because they're less prone to manipulation. <laughs> okay. Manipulation by the Fed? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so the, the EU isn't as good at manipulating as the Fed is. Uh, that's what I'm saying. The point is stocks are going down and with stocks going down, valuations are getting more attractive. Correct. And we've spoken about this previously. And I think uh, Jake at Economic uh, sent us something about this that you don't want to, I mean, okay, depending on your time frame, like it, when, when valuations are coming down, that is not bullish, at least in the short term. But it's it's really wildly bullish for the long term. Correct. It's, it's a great thing because your expected returns are rising. Yes. So it's all about identifying your time horizon. That's correct. Okay. So this week, Market Watch did a list of the 50 Twitter accounts to follow. And I appreciate that we were on this list, but I have to say, I really hate lists in general, but especially like top 10 lists or who to follow lists in particular, because for a few reasons. A, I don't like that it hurts people's feelings. People always get mad at these things, don't they? Yeah, it's but it sucks if you're if you're on the fringe and you're and you're not included, you don't feel good about yourself. But it's also like these lists just in general, I'm not saying market watch this list because I, I honestly didn't even go through it, but in general, lists just suck, right? Like there's never a consensus list that people agree with for obvious reasons. Like it's always and but I guess on the flip side from the peop, from the point of view of people making the list, it's it, it gets a lot of clicks, a lot of attention, a lot of Talk. Yeah. Can, can I tell you why these lists are made in the first place? Sure. So when I first started blogging, I guess it was what, five or six years ago, I remember trying to read up in 
someone tried to give me some tips on how to like build my audience and they and they said that there used to be these things it, it was like a a blog you know when you look into a mirror and there's two mirrors on either side of you and it goes a million different ways in each direction you can keep seeing the reflections that's what these blogs used to do where they would say i'm going to post 30 blog links of all these other blogs and then someone else is going to do that and someone else is going to do that and we'll build up our link backs and our traffic by posting each other's posts on each other's blogs what and it'll be like the, Yes, that's how people used to try to build traction with SEO and these things. And I said, that, that doesn't make any sense. Just if people want to read my stuff and it's good enough, they'll read it. I don't want to try to like trick people into reading it and getting this SEO stuff. Anyway, that's, that's what these lists are. They post them and they hope that the 50 people on the list will share it and say thanks. And that'll drive more clicks. And okay, you're, you're a hundred percent right about that. Clicks on top of clicks on. So it's like the, the double mirror thing where you're looking back and forth into a mirror. Yes. Okay. Having said that, <laughs> having said that, it's, it's an honor to be on this list. No. Yeah, exactly. All right. What are your thoughts on Twitter threads? I'm not a big fan. Here's my rule of thumb for Twitter threads. I think they should never be longer than 10. I feel like anytime you get into like the 20s that I'm, I'm out of there. I, I barely read past two to be honest, but yes, I don't think I've ever made it 20 deep. Okay. So there have been some Twitter threads that I really like. For instance, uh, Dan Egan had one this week where he was talking about behavioral finance stuff, a presentation that he did for Betterment, which I have not watched that, but I would like to, and I'm going to. Uh, and he said, if I could slay one demon, it would be lifestyle creep. What are you laughing at? There's no way you're going to watch it. <laughs> no, I, no, I'm going to. Okay. By the way, side note, there should be an easier way to and I think maybe there is people have probably told me this on Twitter before and I've, cause I've talked about it, but there should be an easy way to turn presentations into podcasts because who wants to sit there and watch an hour long presentation on YouTube? Okay. So next week, next week, come back to me and, and see if I watched it. Okay. I'm going to hold you to this. I'm 50, okay, 50. But, I, I'm getting, I, I gotta be honest. I'm 50, 50. <laughs> exactly. Cause like, I'm totally going to get to it. That's like, that's what I, yeah, me too. But I agree on the lifestyle creep. Yes. That is, that is one of the harder things to do. And this kind of gets back to our, talk from was it last week or two weeks ago about people not being happy because it's always two to three times more that they need and that's the same thing with lifestyle creep is that you you change the baseline and you you move it up a notch every time you get more money and you decide to spend more and it just kind of spirals out of control i think it is the rare person who truly has no material um uh, ambitions or vanity or anything like that where like every dollar they get it's just boom they just they just pocket it i mean Maybe this is you in some ways already because you had your last coat for 12 years. So obviously, <laughs> right? Yes. Your li- lifestyle, your lifestyle is not creeped in your winter gear. <laughs> it, that's very, it's, you know, it's funny. If you were to like look at my spending habits, it's totally irrational on like what I'm comfortable spending money on and what I'm not. Like I had a, yeah, to your point, I had that winter coat for 12 freaking years. But it's, it's hard because some of the best advice I could offer to someone getting out of college is to continue to live like you're in college for the first few years and build good saving habits that way and, and live with some roommates and and don't spend... And like if you want to spend money going out because that's what we did in college, that's fine, but don't spend on a lot of other stuff. And that's a good way to sort of ease your way into that without just going overboard because you're making a little money finally. One more observation. Okay. You know that there's like people on Twitter that... And it's the same people always... <laughs> Saying that next week will be key. <laughs> yes. It's <laughs> like, a line in the sand, right? We'll see what happens next week. Next week yeah. will be very important. The next Fed meeting, the next beige book, the next jobless numbers. The close. Like, it's always, but watch next week. Um, like, when are we going to get to the important stuff? Is it always next this week? This is the most important election. Can I be honest about something? 
uh, following along. This is kind of off topic, but I see it on Twitter all the time. I have no idea what the hell is going on in Brexit. Neither <laughs> do I. Can, can someone explain it to me? Because I still don't know uh, what quantitative easing was. Uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, it was the Fed printing money to ma- manipulate the stock market. Okay. Um, hold, hold on. One last questions? thing. One last thing. Okay. Sticking with the next week will be K. It's very similar to your New York City restaurant argument. Okay. So I was in New York last week visiting you. And obviously, everyone who lives in New York assumes it's the center of the universe. And maybe there's a good point to that. But every time I go there, you guys try to show me a good time and take me out to the best restaurant ever. Right. <laughs> and every time this we go really to these Chris, restaurants, more than me. every time we go to a restaurant, We'll go to it and the food will be great. And you'll say, and someone will say like, okay, this place was okay, but the next place is going <laughs> to be even better. And it's the the best. And every time I go to the best restaurant, but there's always another one that's even better. And it's just, maybe that's New York lifestyle creep where you can't, uh, there's never the best. It's, it's always one better. So be careful on your New York rec- uh, restaurant recommendations, I guess. All right. Listener questions. So I've come to understand the case for increased diversification and the possibility of a better lifetime risk-adjusted returns by incorporating non-market factors in a low-cost manner. However, as a longtime index-only investor, I also value keeping things simple. So does incorporating something like a multi-factor ETF make sense as a way of meeting both goals? So I guess, does it make sense if you're a person who only uses the beta index funds to go out and use something like a factor fund. It can. Yes. Obviously, there are limits and there is a deep, deep, deep rabbit hole you can go down. But if you are comfortable, put it this way, if you are comfortable with indexing and you're not checking your account every three seconds and you're not really into mechanics of the stock market and you're just you know dutifully saving in, a, in an index fund, I think that's probably... Uh, no, I know that's probably good enough. And if you don't want to try to understand all these things, like you said, there, there's a million different ways to slice and dice these things, and it's not always as easy as it sounds. So, I think if you yeah, if you want to keep things simple and you're okay with it, then it might be more trouble than it's worth. But if you understand this stuff and want to get some diversification benefits, I think it can help. So it can kind of go both ways. Yeah, it depends. With respect to the advice you were giving to the new college grads starting out. Oh, this one. <laughs> Perhaps you were trying to balance it out between saving, repaying at the cost of living life and enjoying it at this time in their life, but you implied that it's okay to ignore the credit card debt and have fun now. This is coming from the mother of a 22-year-old who has been trying to instill good saving. Okay, first of all, I did not, imp- at least, okay, maybe I, it was not my intention to imply that it's okay to ignore the credit card debt. What I was trying to say was that if you are fortunate to be a young person making enough money to max out your 401k, then you should also enjoy your life at the same time. However, if you have credit card debt hanging over you, then obviously you should pay that before you invest your money. Yes. Yeah. They may have misconstrued your words. Okay. Number one rule of personal finance, don't carry credit card debt from month to month, especially if you're paying interest on it. Okay, recommendations for the week. I'm going to start. I finished the new Jack Reacher book, Past Times <laughs> by Lee Child. What? Of course you did. I didn't know there was a new one. Yes, it it was awesome. How many the Jack Reacher two, books have you read this this year? This is the 20 this year. This is the 23rd. He puts one out each year. Okay. And I've read them all. And I thought it was kind of like going kind of going downhill a little bit and this one was great. It could be totally be a movie. I loved it. It was he is the best at you know, some sometimes the best thing a, 
the biggest difference between a fiction book and a movie is you can get a lot of this buildup where you have no idea what's going to happen in a fiction book. Like it's easier to hide stuff and hide characters and hide, you know, motives. And I think he's one of the best ones at doing that is like the buildup is almost better than the ending usually sometimes. So I like that. Wait, I question. We, was, was, wasn't Jack Reacher a Tom Cruise movie? Have we been over this? I don't think we've talked. Yes. This, see, this, this is tough because it's pitting my love for Tom Cruise versus my love for Reacher books. And in the book, he's like a 6'6", 250 pound guy. He's not Tom Cruise. I thought they did an okay job, but it should have been Liam Neeson or even like Chris Hemsworth, the guy from Thor. Is it, okay. it should it should not have been Tom Cruise as much as I love TC. Okay. It, it didn't make sense. So this was a Josh Brown recommendation. I started watching Escape at Danamora, which is the true story of a prison escape in 2015, I believe. It's actually directed by Ben Stiller, I guess. And it's really good. Benicio Del Toro, Paul Dano, and... Partisha Arquette are in it, and I think there could be some awards for this one. They're they're all really good in it, and it's it's a kind of a crazy story about these two people who escaped from a prison. It's like a seven part miniseries, and they used a woman who worked there. There was kind of this weird love triangle, and they kind of used her to help them escape from prison. This was like big national news. I remember it at the time, and I and I haven't gone through to read the story because I don't remember how it how it all ended. But it's I'm halfway through it. I'm probably three and a half episodes in, and it's, it's really good. It's like a real life Shawshank in some ways, and finally. This story was going on Twitter quite a bit from everyone. It was called, the title of the article was called My Dad's Friendship with Charles Barkley. Did you read this? Yes. It was amazing. I, it was a great story. What part Just did this, you cry? You don't cry, do you? I don't think I cried. It, I mean, it was crazy how Barkley showed up at this this guy's dad's funeral. Yeah, and, that's and the part that made me cry. No one believed his his dad was just this regular dad who met Charles Barkley in a hotel lobby and they became really good friends. And no one believed this guy that like Charles Barkley is one of his best friends. And they would meet up all the time when they were traveling for business. And Barkley came and said some words at his funeral because he was just like the nicest guy in the world. And yeah, I, it was a great story. So I read Brent Bishore's book, The Messy Marketplace, totally, completely outside of obviously what we do. So I learned a lot and I really appreciated the fact that it was only a hundred pages. There was like an appendix and a lot of terms that were more, but like the meat of it was 100 pages. So I, I definitely learned a lot and I actually have some tangible takeaways. So uh, I recommend that one. I listened to JJ Reddick interview Jimmy Butler and Jimmy Butler gets driven to the arena in a minivan. Any reason for that? I don't remember. I think he just likes it. You, you had a minivan. You're off the minivan wagon. As of two weeks ago, no more minivan. It was, I was not sad to see it go. Really? You were so pro minivan. Yeah, I don't... Well, my wife is probably happier than me that it's gone, but Um, moving on. Okay, so one of the things that I thought was really interesting in that interview was... So, you know, Jimmy Butler hit two game-winning shots early on. I mean, he's only been there for about 10 games, I guess. And they were both, like, dribble, step-back, three-pointers. Okay. So they're both, like, really ridiculously difficult looking shots and he was talking about how before the game like that's a shot that he practices all the time it was not like an accident or a fluke like it was not a Hail Mary he practices those shots so I just I just love listening to players talk about like the dedication how much time they put into it because you only see the finished product isn't it crazy that during the NBA season now you can listen to podcasts between players I love it who are talking that's the access that you have now is is just insane between yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. So he was talking about a vacation that he went on and he would wake up at five o'clock and like uh, Mark Wahlberg, but a little bit later, and he would play basketball. 
and he would come home and, and take a shower, take a nap and then go play basketball. And like he would, that would just, that would, they would do that all day long. So that's the whole life. That's, yeah. that's the whole life. Um, did, did you see this ink story that talked about the most successful people <laughs> in the world? Look up before I am. It, it just, it, it's so funny. It just keeps getting earlier and earlier. So now Mark Wahlberg is, is literally waking up at two 30. Is this a joke? Like what the hell is going on? I don't even have the energy anymore to, to like take these things on. I'm just going to let it go. And I don't know. I'll take the other side of you taking the other side. (laughs) Okay. What else? Oh, so, so anyway, I really like the JJ Reddick podcast next week. He's going to have on the CEO of Goldman, which is going to be awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah. What's the guy's name again? Is he the guy who's like the DJ? Yes. I don't know his name, but I know that he's bald and I appreciate that. Okay. Aren't all the guys at Goldman bald? Yes. Okay. You have your work. You have, you have a place if Baldman sucks. Hey, oh, that was bad. <laughs> Terrible way to end this podcast. All right, thank you for listening. Send us your questions at animalspiritspod at gmail.com, and we'll see you next week. Yeah.